Welcome back to Pod Hates Louisa, a weekly podcast where I talk about whatever the hell I want. Today, I am coming to you live from an Airbnb in rural Massachusetts because we're visiting family for a couple days. And just to set the scene for you, I am sitting on the floor of the shower in my ensuite bathroom, which, thank goodness it's an ensuite because the door does not close. Also, I really like having my own bathroom. Usually I have to, like, share with my entire family and it's rough. I feel like a lot of people say they podcast from, like, closets or whatever because of the acoustics, so I don't know if it'll really make a difference, but it might help. I know that singing in the shower always seems to sound better. Also, this is off topic, but I feel like we should normalize singing in the shower, like even in like a shared college bathroom, because I don't know, unless you're really bad at singing, I enjoy hearing other people sing and I think it's fun. But mainly I think this location is appropriate for today because we're going to be talking about some incidents that might require the use of a safety shower. Today, I have three gripping tales of chemical mishaps and misadventures. There are so many like cautionary lab tales out there, but I tried to choose some that were either just interesting, interesting and funny, or interesting and tragic, but none that were just tragic because there are a lot of those, and no thank you. So I hope you enjoy and learn something today. We're going to start off with the case of Catherine Wetterhahn. So Catherine Wetterhahn, or Vetterhahn, I guess if you want to be like more German about it, was a Dartmouth-based researcher who specialized in toxic metal exposure, and she wasn't actually studying mercury, I think she was studying cadmium but she was using dimethylmercury as a standard to compare samples to for her NMR measurements. NMR spectroscopy, or nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy, is basically a technique that helps scientists identify the atoms in a chemical compound and determine its structure. So you have to like use something that you know is dimethylmercury and compare it to something unknown to figure out what the unknown thing is. And dimethylmercury is basically just a mercury atom with two carbons and six hydrogens attached to it, and three of the hydrogens are on each carbon. Sorry, that's all kind of unnecessary background, but I know that I like things explained to me in sufficient detail, so I hope that satisfied some of you. Anyway, one fateful August day in 1996, Catherine Vetterhahn spilled a couple drops of dimethylmercury on her hand, which was encased in a latex glove, so she thought she was okay, and she cleaned up before taking off her protective equipment, rather than immediately taking the glove off and cleaning the area. This was her fatal mistake, because dimethylmercury can permeate latex, because it's a small nonpolar molecule, it can just slip right through the latex and enter the skin within like 15 seconds or something. So for this reason, you now have to wear plastic laminate gloves when working with dimethylmercury, but we didn't know that at the time. We only found that out in tests that were conducted because of what happened to Catherine Vetterhahn. Three months later, she started experiencing abdominal pain, and five months later, she started seeing neurological symptoms like loss of balance and slurred speech that are associated with mercury poisoning, and she got blood and urine tests which revealed that she did have a massive toxic load of mercury, and she got chelation therapy, which is basically binding heavy metals with something else so that they can be excreted by the body, and this feels like a thing that very, like, rich wellness people would unnecessarily get, like a Gwyneth Paltrow thing, because I feel like they're always going on about toxic heavy metals, but it actually is a good treatment for heavy metal poisoning, but this unfortunately did not stop her condition from deteriorating, and a couple weeks later, she fell into a vegetative state. I don't even know if that's still, like, the medically used term for it, but she was basically in a coma except that she would have brief periods of extreme agitation, and she ended up dying in 1997, less than a year after her laboratory mishap. 
So the moral of the story there is always wear plastic laminate gloves when working with dimethylmercury, but I don't know, I would want to avoid toxic heavy metals as much as I possibly could were I to be a chemist, probably. And in general, if you spill something on yourself in the lab, always clean it off before doing anything else. It's just better safe than sorry. Alright, so this second thing is kind of a couple stories about one guy. So his name is Carl Barry Sharpless, commonly known as Barry Sharpless, who was a professor at MIT and then Stanford. He was a two-time Nobel Prize winner, a very well-known and respected organic chemist, but he was also kind of iconic and quirky, and he was known for frequently tasting chemical compounds to help identify them. But he was frequently found unconscious on the floor of his lab after tasting chemicals, and he told an interviewer once that as long as something doesn't have a nitrogen in it, you're basically safe to taste it. Um, this is definitely not foolproof, because there are tons of toxins without nitrogen in them. One example is aflatoxins, which are produced by fungi that live on agricultural crops and can cause liver cancer in humans, as well as other incredibly unpleasant symptoms, and they can also be fatal. And also trichothecenes, which are produced by fungi like black mold, and they cause cell death in your bloodstream, as well as the lymphatic and gastrointestinal systems, by basically slowing down the production of proteins and nucleic acids, which are two of the major molecules your cells are made of. So it's a horrible way to die, essentially. And according to ScienceDirect.com, those are toxic to the skin and testes, which I thought was oddly specific and kind of funny. Like, how did we find that out? Like, did they test it on, like, all parts of the body and it was only toxic to the testes and skin? But anyway, speaking of testes, when Barry Sharpless was transporting concentrated hydrogen peroxide, H2O2, for his research, he wanted to avoid mechanically induced decomposition. So in order to keep the containers from shaking and jolting around too much, he would hold them between his legs. But the thing about concentrated H2O2, hydrogen peroxide, is that when it decomposes due to too much mechanical shock, too much jostling and shaking, it freaking explodes, so much so that it can be used to propel rockets. And putting it between the legs would warm it up at least some, I think, and that also contributes to the decomposition, which contributes to it exploding. So he was literally risking his nuts every time he would stabilize those containers between his legs and the car. But thankfully, he did get very lucky in that area and he did not blow himself up. Good job, Barry Sharpless. He was also blinded in one eye because after he'd taken off all of his personal protective equipment one day to leave the lab, he took a peek at a student's pressurized NMR tube containing condensed oxygen and it exploded, sending glass fragments into his eye. And at first he had to have both eyes bandaged and he was at risk for sympathetic ophthalmia, which is a really interesting phenomenon. I just want to talk about it for one second because it's actually really interesting, guys. Both eyes basically are separated from the rest of the body when we're developing in utero, so the body sometimes doesn't recognize the eyes as part of itself. So when eye protein is driven into the bloodstream, as it might have been in this accident, the immune system can sometimes attack and basically kill the other eye, the one that didn't get injured. So people can lose vision in both eyes just because one eye was damaged and eye protein went into the bloodstream. But Sharpless thankfully retained full vision in his good eye, but forever provided lab professors with a cautionary tale to tell their students to get them to always, always wear safety glasses, no matter what. My high school chem teacher definitely had a poster of like a girl with dark sunglasses and a cane with the caption, Carol never wore her safety goggles, now she doesn't need them. Which is kind of like not funny at all, but I feel like it was definitely intended to be funny. Yikes. Anyways, our final story today is basically Breaking Bad in real life, except I don't think Walter White ever used his school's lab to cook meth. But basically, in the early 2000s, a master's student in chemistry at San Diego State 
State University named Matthew Finley manufactured methamphetamine, ecstasy, and fentanyl in a lab at the university. And for those of you who aren't familiar, fentanyl is a very, very, very potent anesthetic, approximately 100 times more potent than morphine and 50 times stronger than heroin. This is a big contributor to opioid overdoses because people do not know that their drugs have been laced with fentanyl, which is much stronger than other drugs, so they might take a dose that they think is going to be the right amount, but it is actually much too strong and could kill them. Anyway, this guy was making that stuff in a lab at the university, and he had also previously used a lab at UC Santa Barbara to convert liquid ecstasy into a powder form, and the following year, he was also caught growing cannabis for recreational use, which was illegal in California at the time. So this guy really just did not learn his lesson, because after, like, getting caught doing drug stuff twice, he still went and used his school's lab to make more drugs. But I think it's very telling that this very white man got off with a warning for multiple drug operations. I think he spent, like, a year in jail for weed, but that's, like, nothing compared to the sentences that most black people and other people of color get for even, like, possession of a little tiny bit of weed. Um, and it's really a testament to the racism of the police system, honestly. And in general, there's just a need to decriminalize marijuana because so many people are in jail right now for nonviolent drug offenses. But anyway, we also need to abolish prisons, read Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis, but that could be a whole nother episode. I'm not going to get into it right now because it is time to wrap up. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode, and I encourage you to all wear proper protection whenever doing anything fun and crazy with chemicals. And I will talk to you next time. Louisa Miller out.